This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. Here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Got the next three hours with you. Try and uh, keep pace with Dave Rothenberg, who got our Saturday morning started, as he always does. Ty Butler after me. We got Jake Montgomery and Harvey Cruz producing the show. Harvey did so well week number one at the station. We let him come back for week number two. My first time with him. Uh, not my first time with the callers. 1-800-919-3776. Kind of a little bit of fun this afternoon. Uh, rough baseball night last night. Interesting baseball day in New York. That starts in a little less than an hour. The Mets with a day-night doubleheader at City Field against the Atlanta Braves. And then the Yankees, the national TV game tonight in St. Louis against the Cardinals after their latest well, let's just say a bullpen meltdown. Another blown save for Clay Holmes last night and another uh, tough Yankees loss last night. We're going to get into a lot of the football. I know that has been a topic of conversation already today. Giants and Jets having wrapped up their first full week of training camp. Connor Rogers will join me at the bottom of this hour to talk about the Giants, the Jets, the quarterbacks, and the NFL at large. And we'll also throw some Mets his way as well as he hosts a Mets podcast. And, of course, your calls at one 800 919-3776. There's trouble. <clears throat> There's trouble in Yankee land. You know, I had every intention when you're doing these shows a couple of days a week, obviously a couple of days ahead of time, try to predict, which is impossible in the sports world, but you try to predict, all right, where are we going to be at this point? Uh, Saturday afternoon, you know, what's going to be the top story? Um, I've done a lot on the Yankees this year because the Yankees have been dominant this year. The first half of the season on a record pace for much of the season. It was one of those charm seasons where everything that could go right did go right for the Yankees. And that's to take nothing away from the Mets. The Mets have been outstanding. They've been consistent this entire year. A minor blip in the radar the couple of weeks before the All-Star break. But they straightened themselves out with that big series against Atlanta right before the All-Star break. And they've been lights out since the break. I was ready to throw all flowers at the Mets this afternoon. Top story, let's get into the Mets, and we will talk about them plenty. Rough night for the Mets last night. Rough first couple of innings for Taiwan Walker and what has been an excellent season for him. <clears throat> Excuse me, just a blip on the radar as far as I'm concerned for the Mets. They have been playing so well. It was just one of those starts for Taiwan Walker and the Mets where he didn't give his team a chance to win. They actually did show some fight, which this team always does. And you move on to today's doubleheader. You still have your top two guys pitching in two of the final three games of this series against Atlanta. Max versus Max tonight. An excellent pitching matchup. Max Scherzer, Max Freed at 1 o'clock at City Field. It's David Peterson against Jake Odorizzi making his first start for the Braves since coming over in a trade deadline move. And a very interesting pitching matchup for the Yankees tonight in St. Louis after their brutal loss last night. The Yankees going with Domingo Herman, and the Cardinals going with Jordan Montgomery, making his first start since his surprising trade at the trade deadline. And that is such an interesting pitching matchup to me because that essentially was the decision. When Brian Cashman, and I still don't understand how he came to this conclusion that the Yankees were in a position to give up some of their starting pitching depth, especially after they traded Jake Sears, who was part of that starting pitching depth. I, I, the move to trade Montgomery for Harrison Bader is still confusing to me a week, five days after the trade was, was made. But essentially, from the Yankees' standpoint, you have to think that the decision came down to, well, who are we more comfortable with? 
Jordan Montgomery or Domingo Herman, who recently came off the injured list after a, a lengthy stint there. Obviously, Herman is still in pinstripes, and Montgomery has been jettisoned to St. Louis. You know, you're not going to trade Garrett Cole, although I think there's a lot of Yankee fans out there right now who would love to trade Garrett Cole. You're not going to trade Nestor Cortez. You're not going to trade Luis Severino because of his health concerns. Um, Jamison Tyone, I, I don't know, is tradable right now. He had a very good first two months of the season, and he has uh, certainly come back to earth in, in recent weeks. So essentially, with the addition of Frankie Montez, the decision came down to Montgomery or Herman. And Herman's a guy who's got a lot of experience pitching out of the bullpen, just like Severino has experience pitching out of the bullpen. And the fact that they're going to be opposing each other tonight, I mean, let me ask any Yankee fan that's listening right now, Herman against Montgomery. Who has the edge in that pitching matchup? I don't think there's any question it's Jordan Montgomery. So it's interesting that Montgomery's first time out of the gate in St. Louis is not only against the Yankees, but it's against Domingo Herman, essentially the pitcher who the Yankees picked to keep over Montgomery. But last night, more signs of trouble for this team. And if you're not concerned about the Yankees right now as a Yankee fan, then... I think you're a little foolish, to be honest. The Yankees, in the first half of this season, win that game last night. They won every game in the first half of the season. In fact, in the first half of the season, the Yankees would have been the team trailing 3-1 to one and then coming back to win that game last night because they did it time and time again in the first half. And this is why when I took calls in the first half of the season and people asking me to compare the 2022 Yankees and the 1998 Yankees. It was a nice topic of conversation. And it was funny to kind of dive into the names on both teams. And the only thing they really had in common was the winning percentage. This team was never in the class of the 98 Yankees. I don't know if this team is in the class of the 2019 Yankees. Boone's one really good Yankees team. I mean, you think about all of the holes that this team has or has had throughout the season. Now, Cashman tried to, and I think did plug some of them at the trade deadline. Andrew Benatendi presumably plugged a hole. He was supposed to be an upgrade over both Joey Gallo and Aaron Hicks. That has yet to play out. Frankie Montaz, you slide him in number two, number three in your starting rotation. That's supposed to plug a hole. Trevino, Efros, in the bullpen, those are supposed to plug holes. And Efros looked very good last night, pitching an inning and a third out of the bullpen. But let's look at what this Yankees team is right now. Yes, they have the huge lead in the American League East. The rest of the division, nobody's on a six or seven game winning streak. Nobody's showing any signs of putting any serious pressure on the Yankees right now for the division lead. But you look at Houston, they're now a half game behind the Yankees for the best record in the American League. And I've been on that for weeks. It's very important for the Yankees to hold them off and have home field advantage if they are to meet in the ALCS. But I've got to be honest with you right now. I look at this Yankees team right now, and I don't know if I see a team that's going to make the ALCS. So much of sports is what is your record at the end of the season. How did you finish the season? Not how did you start the season. How did you finish the season? And we've seen it throughout history. A team run out on a record pace for the first month, 
two months, in this case, three months of the season, and you think you get to the halfway point of the season and you're playing 700 baseball or 680 baseball and you think nothing can stop you, well, then all of a sudden, your closer can't get right-handed batters out. Your closer who got everybody out the first half of the season, now he can't get right-handed hitters out in a big spot. Your ace is a mess right now. He has not had one good start since the All-Star break. Not one. He started three games. He hasn't been good in any of them. Garrett Cole's first start out of the All-Star break was a disappointing one in Baltimore. The Yankees lost the game. He gave up three runs in six innings. Not terrible numbers, but for Garrett Cole, it was disappointing. And you go back to how he finished the first half of the season. He made the All-Star team. The Yankees juggled their starting rotation to make sure that Cole pitched on Sunday, which meant that Cole would not be able to pitch in the All-Star game. The Yankees jumped through all of these hoops to make sure that Cole's arm wouldn't waste a single inning pitching in Los Angeles in the All-Star game. Well, how did that work out? Since then, he's had a disappointing start against Baltimore, and then his last two starts have been worse And the last one was the worst of all, where he gives up six runs in the first inning. I mean, you have right now, you have your best pitcher on your staff is incapable of giving your team a chance to win. And that is a huge problem. All season long, once the Yankees started to run away from the rest of the American League East, and it became clear and it became evident that they were going to the postseason. And this was different than Yankee teams in recent years, where they had to battle with the likes of Tampa Bay. I mean, you remember last season, it went down to the very last game of the season before they even clinched a spot in the wild card game. Since 2019, the Yankees' participation in the playoffs has not been assured until basically the last weekend of the season. This year, that's not the case. So then you start to think, okay, well, how good can this team be? Then you start to think of a deep run in October, a run to the World Series for the first time since 2009, winning the World Series for the first time since 2009. When your team is winning 68% of its games, these are the things that you're supposed to think about. And these are still the things that you're supposed to think about. Yankees still have a sterling record, 70-37. and 37. They still have a huge lead in the American League East. But let's look at this Yankees team, and let's match them up in the ALDS first round against, let's say, the Toronto Blue Jays. The Blue Jays, which has solid starting pitching and what could be a very dangerous lineup. How confident are you as a Yankee fan with your team going into a best-of-five series against that team? How confident are you right now? Because teams that have 680 and 690 winning percentages, and I know the percentage has dipped in recent weeks. The Yankees are a 500 team, 21 and 21 over the last 42 games. But how confident are you in your team, even in that first round series in the ALDS? You're going to start Garrett Cole in game one? How confident are you in that? Don't you remember earlier this season? Vlad Guerrero taking him deep at Yankee Stadium. Nestor Cortez, what's he going to look like by October? He's already over his career high in innings pitched by about 25%, and he still needs to pitch the final two months of the regular season. We'll see what Montaz can bring when he finally gets on the mound for the Yankees. Tyone, you don't have confidence in right now. Herman's been okay. 
He's still a work in progress. I think the Yankees are putting a lot of eggs in the basket of Luis Severino coming back healthy and effective for the final two weeks of September. And I think that's a very risky move with this guy's injury history. And then you get to the bullpen. And the one constant this year has been the Yankees' bullpen. And the two most important guys in the bullpen right uh, all season long were Michael King, who's out for the season, and Clay Holmes. But let's look at Clay Holmes for a second. The Yankees got Clay Holmes in a trade deadline deal last year that you probably didn't even notice because he was a relief pitcher in the Pirates' bullpen who had an ERA of 5 appeared to be a depth move for Brian Cashman last year, a move in which he saw something in this pitcher and thought that Matt Blake and the Yankees coaching staff could straighten out. And credit to everyone involved, they did. Because Holmes was excellent as a Yankee last year, and he was an all-star closer for them this season. But this is not a guy with a lengthy track record of that kind of performance. So was it ever reasonable to expect him to continue at that level for the entire season. He was kind of a guy who all season long, the Yankee fan was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it seems like it has. Now, is he going to be a lost cause for the rest of the year? You hope not. And I'm not ready to say that right now. But the Clay Holmes, Michael King combination at the back end of that bullpen has been among the biggest reasons why the Yankees are in the position they are in. First place running away with the division. And that combination does not exist right now. And the guy who I have been saying for weeks to keep an eye on has been a Roldis Chapman. So here we are. And after the game last night, because Boone brings in Holmes for the eighth inning to get try to get those tough right-handed hitters out, it didn't work. And Boone said after the game, if Holmes got through the eighth and the Yankees went into the ninth inning with a lead... Aroldis Chapman was coming in. Well, we're here. We're back to that. Aroldis Chapman, it appears, for all intents and purposes, is once again the Yankees' closer. And let me ask you that, Yankee fans. How does that make you feel? Mike Brasso, 2022. Excuse me, 2021. Um, Jose Altuve, 2019. How does that make you feel? Brasso was in 2020. Altuve was in 2019. This COVID thing has really messed up my concept of time. But two years in a row, he gave up a tie-breaking home run that essentially ended the Yankee season in the playoffs. And it appears yep, that he is once again your closer. All right, Pat O'Keefe back with you on 98.7 ESPN New York. Mets and Braves, uh, top of the hour. Game one of a day-night doubleheader from City Field. David Peters and Jake Odorizzi, you got a battle of the Maxes. Uh, in the nightcap tonight, Max Fried, Max Scherzer, everything you could want in a pitching matchup. That should be the like, Yankees-Cardinals, obviously, for its historical significance, is a very sexy matchup. But Max Fried, Max Scherzer, Mets, Braves, August night, uh, Saturday night, that's a very, very appealing matchup as well. Mets lose last night 9-6. to Taiwan Walker didn't have it. Don't get mad at Taiwan Walker. He is very near the top of the reasons why the Mets have been able to hold down the fort in the absence of Jacob DeGrom all season long until last week and in the absence of Max Scherzer for several weeks. Walker has been outstanding this year. He's been so good that even in a night like last night where he gives up four runs in the first and then gives up four runs in the second, so eight runs in one inning pitched. His ERA after that 
is still just 3.45. Off night for him. But even in defeat last night, you liked a couple of things that you saw from the Mets. First of all, let's hear from Taiwan Walker on his performance. Again, one-plus innings, seven hits, eight runs, all earned, couple of home runs for his troubles, and uh, frankly didn't get the job done last night. No, I mean, I thought I felt pretty good in the bullpen, but, you know, I went out there. My velo wasn't very good um, today either, and, you know, I was just leaving too many balls over the middle of the plate. Um, you know, I didn't do my job today. Um, the bullpen had to wear it, which I'm not proud of at all. Um, you know, the offense still did their job and saw a lot of a lot of their pitchers today and scored six runs. And, you know, when you give up eight runs, it's going to be hard to come back from. Well, the Mets did come back. They scored a run in the bottom of the second. They scored four runs in the bottom of the fifth. They made this an 8-5 ball game at one point. Trevor Williams came out of the pen and pitched four shutout innings. So this is what good teams do. And the Mets are, every single day that passes, the Mets are taking on the look more and more of a championship caliber team. Even in the way they lose their games. Their starting pitcher, who's been outstanding all season long, has an off night. A really good team gets to him early. The Mets fight back, claw back to within three runs, and Trevor Williams gives them four shutout innings out of the bullpen. So they didn't have to completely destroy their bullpen. Uh, Jolie Rodriguez pitched an inning, Michael Givens an inning, Hunter two innings. So they didn't have to use any of their high leverage guys. They didn't have to bring in a position player to pitch in a game like that. They were just able to get through it with their starting pitcher, giving them only one inning. And Buck Showalter appreciated the effort of Trevor Williams. One of the key outings for us tonight was uh, Trevor Williams. He's a very valuable guy for us this year, especially with his versatility back and forth and you know the job that uh, Joely did. And Michael came in and got a double play ball, and Tommy finished it up. He'd like to have that last, uh, next last hitter back. But... Uh, you know, our guys kept grinding, and um, I don't think it means, you know, they've, they've used all their bullpen most of the year. I mean, they they don't run them out there. They're pretty short outings. They've really got so many good weapons down there, they just kind of pass the load around. So, uh, you know, they'll be back on their feet. You know, they're, they're fine tomorrow, and uh, it'll be, uh, you know, you got two good teams. They We were able to get to a very good pitcher last night, and they were very, able to get to a very good pitcher today. Two games today, Max Scherzer, Max Freed, the 7 o'clock game tonight at 110 at City Field. It's David Peterson and Jake Odorizzi who came over from Houston at the trade deadline. Uh, Brandon Nimmo in center. This is the Mets lineup for game one. Starling Marte in right, Francisco Lindor at short, Pete Alonso at first, Daniel Vogelback batting fifth is the DH. Jeff McNeil at second. Tyler Naquin is in left field batting seventh. Luis Guillorme playing third base today. And you have James McCann batting ninth and behind the plate for the Mets in game one of this day-night doubleheader at City Field. 1-800-919-3776. Let's open up the phone lines and go to Adam in Newark. Adam, how you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, great segment here on the Yankees. I just wanted to chime in on one thought. You nailed uh, Garrett Cole and on the opposite side. What is going on with Andrew Benatendi? Wasn't this guy supposed to be our left-handed contact hitting pickup? You know, over the last 10 games, his batting average has gone from 321 to 305. So over the course of the next 10 games, if he keeps this up, he's going to be down to, what, 290? I mean, what's going on with this guy? 
It's hard to explain, and that has been a huge problem. And you don't look. How many games has he played here? Six games since coming over. Uh, he's been awful. He's one for seventeen. Um, he's Joey Gallo <laughs> essentially. He he has walked a little bit. He's gotten on base. He's got seven walks in his last six games. Um, ben Attendee. I, see, I didn't worry about. You always worry about guys like Gallo, um, you know, as it turned out, Sonny Gray, Jason Bay, guys like that who come from the smaller market team into New York, especially in the heat of a pennant race. You would think Ben Attendee, that's not going to affect him because he played for the Boston Red Sox. He's been in the middle of the highest pressure situations that you can find in Major League Baseball. The only thing I'll say about Ben Attendee, he has been a huge disappointment. He has been... Uh, a big reason for this recent slide because Cashman makes the move. It seemed like a move that made sense on so many levels to so many people. And for a week anyway, it has not worked out. Let's give it a little bit more time. Let's give it another week. Let's hope from the Yankee perspective that it's just a slump and it's a really rough start. But it's a really rough start because bringing in Ben Attendee was supposed to be a significant upgrade over Joey Gallo. It has not been an upgrade at all. He has given you the exact same feeble production that Gallo gave you for an entire calendar year that greased the skids for his exit to Los Angeles. Look, there's a lot to be concerned with for the Yankees right now. If you ask me, long-term, am I there yet being concerned that Ben Attendee is going to be a flop in New York? I am not. It's been a week worth of games. It's been a very poor week's worth of games. But the caller's right, Adam, to see his batting average plummet. When the Yankees got him, he was batting 320. And now for the season, he's down to 305 in just over a week. That's a pretty significant decline in just over a week. Give him another week. Let's see where he is a week from now. Bigger concerns for me are Garrett Cole and Clay Holmes. Because your championship hopes are tied to those two guys specifically. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll get into some football. Connor Rogers will join me. We'll take a look at the Giants. We'll take a look at the Jets. Uh, we'll take a look around the NFL. Uh, training, or excuse me, training camp is underway. Preseason games for both teams are less than a week away. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. Preseason games begin for the Giants and Jets this week. Giants in New England on Thursday. Jets in Philadelphia on Friday night. And Connor Rogers, he's all over the place. Draft analyst for Bleacher Report. Hosts the NFL Stock Exchange for PFF. Also, uh, the Mets pod on SNY TV. We'll get to that as well, Connor, but we'll start with the football. Uh, appreciate your time as always, man. How you doing today? I'm good, Pat. Always good to talk to you. I appreciate it. I feel like we do it uh, this time of year every single year. You know, let, let me come out of the gates hot with you because obviously the Giants and the Jets and uh, both lengthy droughts on, on either side. Which team is in better position to show some significant improvement this year? I think the Jets are just further along, right? I think that, and it's fair, and I think Giants fans even understand that. It's as simple as timelines, right, Pat? When you look at it, Robert Sala going into his second year as a head coach in the NFL, as the coach of the Jets. Mike LaFleur, second year calling plays. Obviously, Joe Douglas has been here for a bit now where this roster has his fingerprints on it. The blueprint is from him. There's not a lot of holdovers from the previous regime uh, that did not give him much to work with. Where the Giants, 
you know, they're a year or two behind that phase right now. I think it's as simple as that. They're still trying to figure out if Daniel Jones is the guy. They didn't pick up this fifth-year option. They A lot of their premium capital, both salary and draft picks, were not spent by this group. And the reason, you know, that previous regime isn't here is because they had a lot of misses, both in free agency and draft picks. So I know everybody's all up in arms about the Jets' schedule. How many times can we talk about schedule this, schedule that? But the Jets have bigger expectations, I think, internally. And I think that's fair. They have Zach Wilson in the second year needs to show more. The coaching staff needs to show more. Their investments need to show, uh, need to prove to be worthy. And I think they will at the end of the day. Has Zach Wilson shown more this year? I I was a defender of his last year. I thought he did some good things in spots. I thought we all thought he was in a very tough situation, which he was. But he also, you know, Joe Burrow was in a really tough situation the year before, and he showed some signs that, wow, this guy's going to be really good. Zach didn't do that last year. Um, Has he shown any of those signs this year that, yeah, this guy could be the guy? I think so. I think, number one, what we know with Zach is, He's immensely talented, but he has to do the easier stuff first, and that's what he struggles with. He didn't hit a lot of layups last year. He didn't hit a lot of obvious reads and throws. So the mental side of the game was a big struggle for him, and no coincidence when you watch what was deemed by people like me uh, a great quarterback class, they all struggled. Trevor Lawrence was, was really bad for most part of the season in a bad situation. Same for Zach Wilson. He got going the second half of the year. Justin Fields, when healthy, struggled. Trey Lance could not beat out Jimmy Garoppolo. And Mac Jones was fine, but he kind of played with training wheels in his offense for the most part, and he did what was asked of him for the most part. But we know how that all kind of hit the fan when they got to the playoffs. You you can't play that brand of football in big-time games. So mentally, a lot of these guys needed the reps. They need the time. And now Zach has had that, where this year – He needs to hit those layups. He needs to hit his reads. He needs to execute the offense. That looks much better on paper, right? Corey Davis is back healthy. Garrett Wilson, 10th overall pick. Elijah Moore is healthy. They have two running backs that can carry the workload and make guys miss and make plays both in the run game and the pass game. They spent a premium on the offensive line, adding Lakin Tomlinson. They have Dwayne Brown in for a visit today. Uh, So this is a unit that is much more talented. But I think Zach mentally will be in a different place where he'll take the proper steps going forward that they continue to develop around him. And on paper, Connor, especially with the weapons, they seem to have a lot more depth than they have in recent years. You know, going back to the year where they had a chance to make the playoffs and they couldn't beat Buffalo, they had a lot of weapons that year. Ever since then, they haven't had a lot in that department. Um but, but specifically with Garrett Wilson, um, recently, you know, we saw Jamar Chase last year. We've seen Justin Jefferson. We've seen the high-end wide receiver from big-time programs come into the NFL and make an immediate impact. Is there potential for Garrett Wilson to be that kind of guy this year? I think from a volume perspective, it won't be there this year, which is kind of a luxury, right? That he doesn't come have to come in and be a superhero, right? When you look at... Devontae Smith last year going to the Eagles. He was just the guy from day one, and he had a nice season, but it was a lot of weight on his shoulders. Jamar Chase, as a, a generational in a sense, or, or as excellent as he was, had T. Higgins around him, had Tyler Boyd around him, had C.J. Uzama at tight end. They could run the ball where there was help. Garrett Wilson's going into a situation like that where you have a pro in Corey Davis, you have a second-year breakout who I personally think Elijah Moore is going to get the most targets on the team. He's just too talented. When he's healthy, he's going to be their best player on offense on the field uh, out of the skill guys. So for Garrett Wilson, I don't think the volume will be there. But number one, this is a really sharp guy that mentally he's going to catch up to speed a lot quicker than rookie wide receivers traditionally do where he'll get on the field. 
they'll just have to split reps with guys. Like they're going to play Braxton Berrios. They're not going to sit Corey Davis. They, maybe they'll sprinkle in Denzel Mims, who's had a strong camp. So Garrett Wilson is going to have to earn those reps, but I think he'll be really efficient in the targets and workload he does get from the team. I'm glad Mims has had a strong camp. I've always been high on him, even ever since his rookie year, when he's been available, of course. We're talking with Connor Rogers, who hosts the NFL Stock Exchange for Pro Football Focus and several other platforms. How good is Brees Hall? I mean, really, really good. And that might even be an understatement. I think when you paint the full picture with Brees, this is a player that went to a program at Iowa State that is a hard-nosed, gritty program under Matty Campbell. And Brees Hall was kind of just the guy right away there. He was an underclassman captain. He was a junior captain. Uh, he was a superstar as a sophomore. He can catch the ball. He can break tackles. He runs in the four threes. He's got a, a big muscled-up body that can take on contact after contact. Now, they're going to mix in Michael Carter where they won't have to use Brees as a true battering ram and really wear him out as a rookie. But he, he's a difference maker that they haven't had at running back in this decade. Let's just be fair. I mean, truly, the last running back that I think even had the close talent to Brees Hall and still not as talented as him was Chris Ivory. Brees Hall is a better player. He's faster. Uh, he could be more effective in the pass game as well. So, they feel like they got a steal. They feel like they got a guy that could be a top five running back in this league on day two when they made that trade up with the Giants, I believe. And Brees Hall has had a strong start to camp as well. He has a strong start wherever he goes. When he got to Iowa State, it was the same thing. So I don't think anybody in the scouting world or in the coaching world is surprised by this. Connor, defensively, it seems like they have a guy at every level. You know, hopefully we get to see a healthy Carl Lawson. We'll see what we see from Quinn and Williams. Hopefully C.J. Mosley can give you a full season in the linebacker core. And then, of course, the guy who everybody's so excited to see is Sauce Gardner in the secondary. Outside of those guys, um, or, or inclusive, inclusive of those guys, how is the uh, defensive unit set up for the Jets this year? This is a group that really needs to come together. Now, they had the injury bug last year. They really decided to play young players. Day three picks like Michael Carter and Brandon Eccles and Bryce Hall two years ago, day three picks. They started last year. They threw these guys into the fire, Pat, and the Jets' defense really was bad last year. There's no way around it. I thought the corners were mostly fine. The run defense was horrendous for the most part. And when they dealt with a lot of injuries, this goes back to their injury luck being very poor last year, no Carl Lawson. They lost Bryce Huff, I think, in week seven. Guys are just banged up in the front seven, which is kind of the engine of Robert Sala's defense. Then they couldn't rush the quarterback either. The Tennessee game was the last game early in the year that I remember them being able to get after the quarterback and impact the game. On paper, once again, they're constructed very differently this year. They have more talent. They have a top five pick in Sauce Gardner, who will start on the outside. It's a matter of, uh, you know, when, not if. DJ Reed, a very underrated player, another starting outside corner. So they got upgrades at both outside corner spots. They're very deep in the pass rush group. Carl Lawson is back. They love what John Franklin Myers can do inside and outside rushing the passer. Sheldon Rankins and Quinton Williams on the inside. And then the depth behind them is the most important thing if they do get hit with those injuries again. Bryce Huff, Jacob Martin, maybe even a veteran like Vinnie Curry, uh, Jermaine Johnson, the first-round pick as well. So this is a deeper unit. I still think they have some question marks in the middle of the field, even after signing Quan Alexander. The linebacker play has to be better this year. Whoever does start next to Jordan Whitehead, probably LaMarcus Joyner, that spot needs to be much better as well. They were a poor tackling team last year as well. But uh, for considering they were you know, bottom three in overall defensive metrics last year, I think this unit should be poised for a pretty big jump. 
Sticking on defense, but talking about the Giants now, I thought two years ago in Judge's first year, the defense was pretty good. It kept them in a lot of games. They were competitive throughout the season. Huge step back last year. The offense, there's still a lot of question marks, and we'll get to that. But again, the Giants' defense, there are at least guys that have put together an NFL resume. Leonard Williams has been good since coming over. Dexter Lawrence, uh, Aziz Ojolari, I know he's out right now, but he showed a lot of promise last year. Xavier McKinney. Does the Giants' defense have the chance to be, I don't know, 15th best, 16th best in the NFL? It wouldn't shock me because of the coaching they have in Wink Martindale. Now, the thing with Wink's scheme is that's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. It's very corner-dependent, and what I mean by that is they will play a lot of cover zero. Uh, They will play a lot of man-to-man coverage and put the pressure on their corners on an island to get after the quarterback, put more guys in the box, line more guys up in the line of scrimmage. Now, James Bradbury, who is a really, really good player when healthy, is no longer there. They were a team that was all over the likes of a Sauce Gardner in the draft, but they simply just weren't picking high enough to get him. And they got a really good player in Kayvon Thibodeau that's going to help out those corners by getting after the quarterback up front. You mentioned Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams. Those guys have already proved themselves. I mean, Aziz is healthy. That front four can, can really stand out. And then they do have underrated players on the back end. The two guys for me that I always think of are Xavier McKinney, who's one of the smarter players in that draft class that year on the back end a very coverage-responsible player that I think this staff will get much more out of him than the previous staff. I thought the previous staff kind of failed him at times. And then Darnay Holmes in the slot is a guy that is an underrated player. I think he can be a sticky cover corner out of the slot, very vital in that division. So the Giants' defense, because of the coaching and because of some of the underrated ascending talent, should be better than people expect it to be. Offensive line is always a question. It's been a decade of them trying to remake this and rebuild this unit, but now you have Andrew Thomas, who, barring injuries, seemed to be coming into his own on the left side. Evan Neal, the humongous rookie out of Alabama on the right side, and then some veterans to fill in the interior of that offensive line. Is this the best O-line that Daniel Jones will play behind? Yeah, and the bar is pretty low to clear for that one, right? But it significantly is. I think Andrew Thomas came into his own his second year. I think Evan Neal is is somebody that won't have as many rookie growing pains traditionally as offensive tackles do year one. He's just built differently that way. The interior, listen, this isn't a great group, but the point is they're not a horrendous group anymore. The offensive line, you're only as strong as your weakest link, which might be a cliche, but that matters in football with the offensive line. And the Giants did a good job with very little money, credit to Joe Shane, upgrading the interior of their offensive line with very low salary capital, and then obviously kind of hitting it out of the park in my eyes by getting a player of Evan Neal's caliber in the draft, where is it going to be a great unit? No, but will it be a unit that completely kills the offensive design week after week? No, it won't be that anymore, and that alone is a big step up. I think Brian Dable has really good awareness of what he's working with, where this should be a quick one-read passing offense, get Daniel Jones moving with his athleticism to – cut the field in half, and maybe extend time on plays as well. So uh, the the biggest question mark I have for this unit to see how it grows is how will they run block this year? Uh, How will they run block for Saquon Barkley? That's been a problem in the past. They're more talented now, but that absolutely needs to improve for this offense to function. Connor Rogers covers the NFL for Bleacher Report and Pro Football Focus. What's a reasonable expectation, Connor, for Saquon Barkley this year? It's all about health. He's such a hard player to predict because the guy is just always banged up and working your way back from injuries kills your explosiveness at times. So I think for Barkley in this league, in this generation, there's no reason why he can't be a thousand yard player. Uh, They don't now here's the thing, Pat, they don't have significant financial ties to him right now where they should be afraid of using him 
in a high workload capacity. And I think Saquon would welcome that with open arms because if he has a big year, then he'll get his money in free agency or from the Giants, wherever it may be. So I look at him. I'm curious to see how they use him in the passing game coming from that Buffalo offense. It's easy to sit here and say, hey, he should have 1,100 yards on the ground if his body can handle that rush for six to eight touchdowns. But can you chip in 400 to 600 yards in the pass game? That's what makes Saquon Barkley different from a lot of running backs in this league besides his explosive plays when healthy. So he needs to stay on the field to hit those numbers. But we know talent is never a question with him. I've been a Daniel Jones believer. I've seen him make enough plays, especially with his legs, to see that there is potential there. But he struggled with consistency his first three seasons. He looks great for a while, and then he makes that one or those two killer mistakes to kill a drive or, in some cases, kill a game. But, Connor, I don't know if that's because of the pressure he's under, because of the offensive line in front of him, or if that falls on him. It's a long way of asking, what can we expect, or what do you expect to see from Daniel Jones this season? I think personally, we won't get back to his rookie season, which had big splashes, but I think he'll be significantly better than the last two years. And yes, that's sitting on the fence. That's riding the middle ground. Daniel Jones, for me, is a guy that will never change the game for you or be the guy that you think is going to get you back deep into the playoffs every single year. But can you dial it back a little bit and limit the turnovers? Like you said, Pat, the fields will open up if they use the threat of his legs more. Jason Garrett's offense was very frustrating during the short time he was here to watch. I think it handicapped Jones at times. It limited him. And I think he's somebody that, yes, you're going to have to live with the turnovers. But if you get him comfortable and confident, we know he could throw the ball downfield. We know he can run. I think he's somebody that you don't want necessarily to ask to carry the workload of the offense. And they're going to take the ball out of his hands at times in a good way with gadget plays, whether it's getting guys like Wondell Robinson, Kandarius Tony, the ball on quick touches, bubble screens, jet sweeps, shallow crossers across the field, creating yards after the catch. That's something that I think the previous regime just wasn't good enough and that you need to do to help young quarterbacks. And when those kind of big plays come along and take the ball out of the quarterback's hands, maybe it'll improve his confidence for bigger plays down on the field. So they didn't pick up his options. So they already have told you what they think of the long term with Daniel Jones. Now he has to go out and prove a lot of people wrong. Let me ask you a couple of league-wide questions, Connor. Is there a team that you know hasn't been at the top of the league lately, somewhat under the radar, that you think could make a lot of noise this year? It's a good question. Everybody is in love with the Chargers, where I don't even think we can consider them that anymore because we've expected them to take that jump, and then obviously you know, they kind of hit this wall a little bit. I do have my eyes on a team like the Lions this year. Now, do I think the Lions are going to even make the playoffs? That might even be a stretch. But I just like the construction of that division where the Packers are going to be really good. I have no questions about that. I don't believe in the Vikings or the Bears. It's as simple as that. And I like the direction the Lions are going. Sure, they have some problems overall in terms of their ceiling at quarterback. But they have a leader uh, that everybody believes in. The talent on paper has gotten much better. And when you're looking at a team that nobody's talking about, right, I could sit here and talk about – once again, a team like the Chargers, a team like that entire division, the Raiders and the Broncos got much better. Uh, the Colts won nine games last year, and I think they're going to take a big jump this year as well. I think, though, the Lions are poised for one of those big jumps from three wins, even to seven or eight would be a massive step in the right direction for them. They'll eventually find their long-term quarterback of the future who will walk into a situation that has stability of coaching and a good roster. And honestly, they're just on a right timeline to not take over that division, but to at least be near the top of it. And Connor, you know all these guys that are coming into the league as the lead draft analyst for Bleacher Report. So give me a rookie or two who you think can make a big splash this season. 
Oh, man, it's a great question. I think, number one, it's easy to start at the top of the draft right there. And, of course, think of, you know, somebody like that with Aiden Hutchinson in the Lions. But I always look on the offensive side of the ball for players that can absolutely take over. The Falcons are not going to be good, but Drake London is going to be just a target monster machine that's going to make plays above the rim to help out his quarterback. So I think a lot of people will talk about Drake London very often. I think a guy like Icky Aquan, who stabilizes the left side of the offensive line for the Panthers, where they're going to be kind of an annoying team now. They have talent on defense. Their biggest hole has been that weekly link on the offensive line. Aquan is an absolute stud. I think Baker Mayfield is going to take over there pretty quickly. So the Panthers, they might not be this team that people are thinking of, especially Matt Rule's struggles early in the league. But getting Aquanu in the draft was a big hit for them, especially without a lot of picks. So this is a rookie class that had a lot of talent, and it's going to make an impact. It's going to put his, its handprint on the league pretty quickly because of how deep that talent went into day two of the draft as well. Connor, great stuff. I always appreciate the time and your coverage. Thanks a lot. Pat, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Connor Rogers. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at Connor J. Rogers. Connor with two N's, lead draft analyst for Bleacher Report, hosts the Mets pod on SNY TV. We didn't even get a chance to ask him about any Mets questions, so much NFL stuff going on. Connor, also the host of NFL Stock Exchange for Pro Football Focus. We'll step aside. Great stuff, as always, with Connor Rogers. He does just such a superb job covering the entire NFL. He knows all aspects, veterans. Uh, he's as uh, up to speed on the rookie class as anyone as he's watching these guys and analyzing them coming into the draft. So great stuff by him. A couple of points that he made that I really caught my attention regarding the Giants and the handling of Saquon Barkley. And the point that he made, that the Giants do not have a lot of capital invested in Saquon going forward, use that to your advantage. And a lot of times you would think, well, that's not necessarily fair to the player. What are you going to give him the ball and have him carry it 400 times this season? And that's a little extreme. He's not going to carry it 400 times this season. But like he said, Barkley would love that because Barkley wants the opportunity to show that he can still be a top-flight running back in this league, and that will lead... He hasn't gotten his big contract yet. You know, he had... He was on the track, as we know. Rookie season was on pace to be one of the greats, and then he gets hurt in the middle of year two, was still pretty good in year two. Year three, second week, tears the ACL, out for the rest of that year, Last year, it seemed like he was starting to round back into form. The New Orleans game, the first win of the season for the Giants, not only for Barkley, but for the entire team. That was the high watermark of last year. Then they go into Dallas with a little bit of momentum. Barkley looking like the weapon that he showed promise in being early in his career. And then he sprains his ankle, stepping on a foot. He's out for another month, and the season was not the same for him. I mean, it has been one thing after another for him. The good news is the sprained ankle that he suffered last year, the high sprained ankle that caused him to miss a month, not connected to the ACL. If you remember the play, it was bad luck. It was one of those freak things where he was uh, trying to catch the ball in traffic. He came down on somebody's foot, ankle turned the wrong way, and he was out for a month. So in the context of recovering from the ACL, now you're nearly two full years removed from that ACL injury early in the 2020 season. 
This is his last opportunity. I mean, you have a backfield, a quarterback, sixth overall pick in his draft, and a running back, second overall pick in his draft, picked one year apart, and this is essentially the final stand, the last stand, the final opportunity for both of them. And Barkley wants that opportunity, and Daniel Jones wants that opportunity. And for both of them, the challenge has been staying on the field. Even Daniel Jones. And I've always been a Daniel Jones believer. Do I think he can be a top 10 quarterback in the NFL? I do not. I still think, though, you can be a consistent playoff team with championship aspirations, depending on who's around your quarterback, if you have a quarterback who's in the top half of the league, top 15. Eli Manning wasn't a top 10 quarterback for a lot of his career. But when he got into those situations in the playoffs, all of a sudden he turned into a top five quarterback. I would love from the Giants' perspective to see Jones have the opportunity to play in those big games because I do think that there is talent there. And we saw the drop-off. I know the Mike Glennon uh, experiment last year was as disastrous as can be. But if anyone questioned whether Daniel Jones has any talent at all, just think back to what the Giants looked like offensively when he missed the last month of last season with the neck injury, because that was tough to watch.